Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And we are getting our rock on once again today with guitarist extraordinaire John Petrucci and one of the greatest singers in rock and roll, James Labrie from Dream Theater. Band has a new live album and concert film called Distant Memories Live in London. You can order at dreamtheater.net or wherever you buy your music. It's out this Friday, November 27th. Add it to your Black Friday digital shopping list. You don't have to venture out to buy this one. A couple clicks on your phone or tablet and your gift buying is done. Plus, if you've never seen them, uh, Dream Theater is an incredible show. This might be your best chance to check them out for a while because of the pandemic. They were on tour when the pandemic hit and they talk about what it was like to try to get home and then to continually scrap dates as things got worse and worse. I know that feeling. We're also telling the story about the time Dream Theater show got shut down by a fire marshal in Los Angeles. I was actually at the show at the Palace. You hear it from my perspective and uh, from theirs. We'll talk a lot about Rush and the passing of Neil Peart and how Dream Theater paid tribute to Neil in their live shows right after he died. And of course, we also talk about the passing of Eddie Van Halen to really round out this crappy 2020. We get into the making of their concept album, Scenes from Memory, and why the whole thing had to be remixed at the last minute. One of my favorite records. They also give a little hint about the new album they're currently working on. And John talks about reuniting with original Dream Theater drummer and Talk is Jericho alumni Mike Portnoy on John's solo album, Terminal Velocity, came out last month. Uh, lots of great stuff with John Petrucci and James Labrie from Dream Theater. It's uh, going to be coming up very soon on Talk is Jericho. But you're talking about Black Friday. Don't forget the debut of Painmaker Apparel, uh, my new clothing line. that has a multitude of designs. Go to painmaker.store to check that out and get everything you can on Black Friday. There's a lot of cool T-shirts and hoodies and sweatsuits and tracksuits and all that sort of thing. Also, don't forget the complete list of Jericho, uh, the new book containing every match I've ever had comments and top tens and uh, personal stories from a multitude of, of, of uh, AEW uh, superstars and wrestling superstars from around the world. That's available at Jericho30.com. And also don't forget about a little bit of the bubbly. Uh, you can still get that, the new batch, which is also at a little bit of the bubbly.com. So now that I've got all those shopping uh, ads out of the way, let's take it to John and James. Dream Theater right here. Talk is Jericho. Yeah, first of all, I've been doing this show for uh, six years, five years, and this is the awesome. first time I've had you guys on, which is amazing because we've known each other for 20-odd years or whatever it is, right. and uh, one of the only benefits of this whole pandemic is everybody's Zooming now. Correct. Before, everyone was doing press over the phone, and now you have to actually, like we said, put on your pants, comb yeah. your hair a little bit, and actually talk to people again it's actually kind of cool it is kind of cool it's re it's really yeah. nice i've been doing a, a ton of press like my solo album came out earlier in the year and stuff just like seeing people you know t and i know we're not in person but you're right it's close yeah because before is. if you had press you would just you know you could get in yeah. your car and drive to wherever you wanted to drive to and just do it on the phone but now we actually have to be grounded and all that sort of stuff so how has it been for you guys because obviously dream theater you guys tour a lot and more importantly you guys tour a lot worldwide you're a very international band obviously all that's come to a halt over the last gosh eight months now was that a tough transition for you guys uh, were you planning on touring were you off anyways kind of what was the situation yeah it was it was pretty tough for us because originally we had planned we finished uh, in europe at the end of february and we were going home, and in April we were supposed to do the South Pacific Rim. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then following that, we were supposed to do a, a full-on slot of uh, North America, a full kind of uh, outdoor shed kind of tour 
throughout North America. So it was supposed to bring us, actually, it's funny, we're talking in October because originally we were going to tour until the beginning of October, somewhere around there. And then we were going to take the time off and then, you know, whatever, move on to the next chapter when we, we saw fit. So it really did kind of throw a wrench in things for sure. Yeah. It's been, I'm sure it was the same for you guys. This is the longest that I've been home probably in, I don't know, 20 years, 25 yeah. years. It's uh-huh. the most I've seen my family in that time frame for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember being home for this long, you know. Aren't divorces on the rise, guys? <laughs> Come on, seriously, have you read about that? Yeah. Divorces are on the rise. Yeah, because I guess people being together, you know, almost 24-7, they're having a hard time. They can't handle it. And, uh, I mean... I think fortunately for us, we're not, we're not experiencing that. But I remember reading that going, I, I can see that. I can see some people look at each other going, who the hell are you? You know? Well, especially for us, because we're such road dogs. And I think kind of our relationships are based on the fact that we're not home all the time. And it's always been that way. Right. There's that dynamic, right? You're away. Yeah, exactly. You back. It's like your honeymoon again. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. The other uh, component is that, I mean, everybody's probably in a different position, but for Raina and I, our our three kids are adults now, and they were two out of three were you know out of the house, and they all came back, you know, because of different <laughs> different reasons, you know, like their jobs shut down or school went remote or whatever, and so uh, you know they we've had a full house for the past you know since since March, and in a lot of ways it's really great, you know, but that's also getting used to too having, you know your whole family back. I mean, we, we've been taking advantage of it and having fun. And, you know, in the beginning, uh, like I think all families were sort of reconnecting and doing everything we could, you know, watching lots of Netflix, playing games, doing all that. But just, it just sort of became like, you know, the new situation. The Um, new norm. Yeah, exactly. Is is everybody being back back home, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because James mentioned, um, and and you the new live record uh distant memories you recorded it in london in february were you guys hearing anything about this oncoming pandemic did you know what it was how was it for you guys being in europe at that time yeah we were actually it's amazing because we just got that recording in i mean that was uh the the last uh couple of days of that tour and then once we got home everything hit so yeah, we were getting uh, word of it on the road, you know, calling back home, uh, you know, talking to our wives and families. And they were kind of getting a feel and and uh, making sure we were being careful. And I remember even just in the UK where we were, we were already stocking up on hand sanitizer and everything else. So, yeah, the news was hitting. And um, fortunately for most of the the world as far as dream theater touring is concerned we got most of it in so mm-hmm. we had done yeah. a couple of north american legs a couple of european legs south america unfortunately um japan south korea australia asia sort of missed out because that was supposed to be in april but uh, we did get a, a large chunk of our touring in and we got the, the show filmed we're just literally just in time. It was like the last yeah. couple of shows we did. I mean, our, even our management was out there and they, they, they explained to us, Hey guys, you know what? We're getting worried. Everything's going to shut down real yeah. soon. So are you guys still open to going to Asia? And we're all like, no, we're not, <laughs> we're not open to going to Asia. We, yeah. you know, we're just going to walk right into this thing. So yeah. I mean, like, like John said, we, you know, everything was, was coming in full blast and we were already 
united in the decision that no, no, we're going to go it's home. Let's see what happens. And what, within two and a half weeks of being home, everything's yeah. shut down. Well, James, I, I don't know if I told you this, but we, so the first night, so like James said, Chris, our manager was out with us and everything. And we're filming at the Apollo and this, you know, it's all built up to these two shows and, and uh, our show has an intermission. So our manager's there. We play the first <laughs> set. It's all being filmed. I, I get off stage. I'm in the dressing room. And, uh, and Frank comes up to me. He's like, I really got to talk to you. So, uh, you know, it's like, you know, we got to figure oh out if, if the gear, we need to know if the gear is going to Asia or not, you know, cause we have to decide that. And I'm like, Hmm, can this wait until after this show? <laughs> <laughs> Frank, <laughs> God bless. You know, you got 15 minutes between sets. Oh, yeah, let's sit down and discuss this. Let's figure this out. Oh my God! But you know, you know what's funny though is that for us, because we were—I remember we were in Salt Lake City for AEW for our wrestling company, and we had a huge show on March 25th at the Prudential Center in Newark, and we'd sold 15,000 tickets. So it was our wow. first show in the New York market. And we were like, we think we're going to make it to the 25th. We got Rochester because yeah. it's every Wednesday, right? So we went to the ring at 940. And at 10 o'clock, 20 minutes later, Rochester was canceled. Newark wow. was canceled. The NBA was canceled. And Tom Hanks had Corona. <laughs> it was oh, like the, my God. The worst yeah, 20 minutes ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. For wow. sure. Yeah. <laughs> it, it knocked a lot of people on their ass for sure. You know, everybody was shocked, for sure. Were you guys always planning on releasing this as a live record and a DVD anyways? Yeah. Yeah, that was the plan. I, you know, it's kind of, it kind of worked out to an extent, you know, for the people that didn't get to see the tour. Right. This DVD is, the, I guess the timing is really good because it's like uh, the next best thing, I guess. It's, it's exactly the show that we would have brought to Japan, to our, you know, Australia and that part of the world. So people who missed it can see it. Yeah, and like John said, it was the last two nights of the European leg. Mm. So we had had the whole European leg to really refine everything, fine-tune everything, make sure that, you know, everything just felt right to us mm. visually. And obviously, you know, the band gets tighter and tighter the more you play. So by the time we were doing those last two shows, it was just autopilot. You know, we were able to go out there, have a good time, but know that everything else was in its place. And we have an amazing crew. And... Uh, the filming of the of the show was so well ex executed as well. So it just everything kind of made sense. Usually, mm -hmm. and Chris, you'll know this. Like usually, being a singer, and you're like, you want to do it the last two nights of the tour, <laughs> you know, seven and a half weeks on tour. But you know what? For me, my voice, for whatever reason, it was getting stronger as the mm -hmm. tour went on. I kept feeling better and better, and so that by the time we did these two last shows, I was like, oh yeah, you know. It was like somebody injected me with steroids, like, get out there, go! You know, and, but it was great because the whole band was on fire. We really were. It's funny when you talk about that because a lot of times I'm like, I wish we could record a record at the end of the tour after playing the songs yeah. for two years yeah, rather yeah. than before. If there was only a way to time warp that, because at the end of the tour, it's always so much more locked in than when you, you know, when you record the record, you're still reading the lyrics and like, how does this go? And, and what's right. this part here? Yeah. You know, and, then you and record you it. things yeah yeah you know and then you record it and you know three months later it comes out or six months later you kind of forget how the songs even went in the first place <laughs> at the end of the tour you know them all and you're locked in that's yeah. a really good point that's a really good point yeah <laughs> should uh, bands should start doing like 
pre-tour and post-tour versions, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'll be, I'll Same thing. See how it changed. That'd be a good experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how hard it must have been for you guys to put together a set list at this point in time. I'm guessing it's just as hard as when ACDC has to figure out what songs they're going to play and not play. I bet it's going to be even harder for DC with the release of their brand new album, the classic Amazing Power Ups, finally arrived. The band that you know and love is back and better than ever. Angus Young, Brian Johnson, Cliff Williams, Phil Rudd, and of course, Stevie Young replacing his departed Uncle Malcolm. They deliver 12 guitar-shredding anthems in the classic ACDC style, including such uh, legacy tunes as Shot in the Dark, Realize, and my favorite, Demon Fire. I bet you those songs will be in the live set for years to come. It's the album that fans have been waiting for. It's available now on CD and vinyl, plus ACDC's released the one-of-a-kind deluxe edition featuring an interactive package that lights up with flashing ACDC neon logo and has a built-in speaker that plays the opening riff of Shot in the Dark. It's very cool. Great packaging. Also comes with an exclusive 20-page booklet including photos and behind-the-scenes content. The deluxe lightbox edition is the ultimate fan package. So get your copy today at acdc.com or wherever you purchase your favorite rock music. It's ACDC's best record in the past 20 years. Go check it out now. Is it hard for you guys, like, just reading over the, the set list for Distance Over Time, and obviously, and we're going to talk about Scenes from Memory, my all-time favorite Dream Theater record, and probably top 10 favorite of all time in any uh, any records, any genre. Oh, man, but thank you. I'm reading through the set list and seeing, you know, uh, A Nightmare to Remember and all these really cool tracks. A, is it's such a cliche question, but I'm curious to see how do you guys pick your set list, and it's even different for you guys because your songs are so long you, you you know one song is another band's four songs at times yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. i mean th- there's so many challenges you know first of all with this show we knew that it was an evening with with two sets we knew that the second set was going to be scenes as you mentioned mm-hmm. so that le- that only leaves us with the first set which when you consider you know a three-hour slot of time intermission doors you know all the stuff chris Mm-hmm. Like it whittles down to, okay, the first set could be about an hour. Like that's about it. So how do you fit in a dream theater show? <laughs> you know, besides scenes, it's already being done. That, that half is, you know, set in stone. We also had to play songs from the new album as well. Right. And mm-hmm. that, right. That was the other component yeah. is that di- distance over time um, was received so incredibly well by our fan base that we were getting asked to play, you know, people I saw a few times, they were like, just play the whole album. Like they were yeah. really looking forward to us playing those new songs. So we wanted to focus on the new songs. Um, and then when you do that, that left only room for two other songs. And uh, <laughs> we, we have this sort of um, this this Excel program that has all the songs and all the times. And you can kind of put them in and see what the time works out at the end. And so we're doing a little bit of that and we discuss it back and forth hey you know what would be cool we haven't played this song like you said nightmare we haven't played that in a while Did, i don't even think we played that with mangini no we had yeah, yeah in fact the not, two yeah. the two songs <laughs> presence of enemies part one and nightmare we hadn't played with mike so that that's a little bit of a factor too you know it's always you can always take the easy way out and be like oh just throw in as i am and pull me under and we'll be you know but i don't think that's uh, the lazy lazy man's set list and <laughs> I, you know we have we play a lot and we have fans that come to multiple shows that so we want to we wanted to deliver you know the best show that we could you have such ardent fans and it's almost like when you don't play pull me under it's like going to see iron maiden when they don't play run to the hills 
Yeah, where it's true, like, you get, true. You know, do you really want to hear this again? But people are like, yes, <laughs> I play know. it again. I know. It's incredible. I can only imagine what those fans must feel like that have these right. hits, you know? And it's like, well, what about my new stuff? No, we don't give a <laughs> shit. Just play that, you know? Yeah, it, it's got to be uh, a little frustrating. I think for us, too, every time – it's funny because we've talked about this over the years, but for me personally, it's like, oh my God, here we go. We're going to play Pull Me Under again. But once you get, you know, into that moment and mm-hmm. you're playing the song, you're, you're fully, fully engaged, you know, or at least that's the way it works with me. Sure. Like, even though you've played it a thousand times, once you get into it, you realize that, that it has such a great vibe and great energy. And you once again are, are hitting it like you would have the first time you sang it or played it live. You know, it's kind of, it's bizarre in that sense. You would think that you just hated it and dreaded it the whole time through, but it's not, it's not the case. Go ahead, John. Oh, I was just going to say, you're, you're also assuming, when, you know, when you don't play those songs that, you know, your hits or whatever, not that we have any, but the, <laughs> the most <laughs> known ones, you're assuming that the whole audience that's there has seen you multiple times and are diehard Dream Theater fans that, don't want you to play it, but that's not the case usually. It's usually a mix of people. People never saw the band before, young people, yeah. kids. It's like they, they want to see that song. You know, I, I do relate to that. You can't just assume that everybody is like complete Dream Theater head. Right. You know, only wants to hear rare B-sides. In fact, we, we on one of the tours, we broke out the song that we never played live before. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, people are going to love this. And like, it was like crickets because nobody knew the yeah, song. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, two, the two people that like were there and oh my, you know, freaking out, it didn't make it worth it. So you do have to look at the bigger picture of the show and, the, you know, the, the audience that's attending. And I do relate to that. You know, when I go to shows, it's like, yeah, I want to see the songs are known for sure. That's a great point. I was talking to Paul Stanley about that. And he's like, you know, for the people that want us to play, why don't you play The Oath or, you know, why don't you play... Yeah, I don't know, Mr. Speed. And it's like, okay, A, what songs do we take out of the set to put those in there? Right. And if we do do the oath and the five people watching are going nuts and the other 10,000 people are going, play Love Gun, what's <laughs> totally. going on? That's <laughs> exactly know? it, Chris. That's exactly <laughs> we, on our On our level, uh, on, our, on our smaller level, we experience that exact thing. Like, what the hell are you guys <laughs> Like two guys in the corner are like, oh, my God, they're playing. The rest of the audience is like, you want a beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. intermission what is it about about dream theater when you mentioned all of this touring that you did and all the touring you could do with pacific south rim and all the european countries and i've followed you guys gosh since 1992 now what is it about your band that's such a universal international phenomenon when you're playing this intricate like you said you don't have any hits hits amongst us amongst the fans but you don't have mainstream songs you don't have this nothing but yet you have the giant fan base worldwide that loves everything you do. They love James. That's what it is. They just want to see the sex appeal of the lead singer. That's what it is. They want to see his sexy body. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sexy right now. (laughs) You know what? I I think it's a combination of things, uh, uh, Chris, because I think that, you know, with the album, each and every album that we put out, uh, you know, without sounding like a broken record, but it's, uh, people are looking to see where the band's going next. And then based on the new material, plus, you know, the catalog of, of songs, people want to experience that live. I think there's an energy that Dream Theater brings to the, the stage. And obviously, you know, for a musician to go out and see a band like Dream Theater, 
you have for, uh, four virtuosos uh, going crazy on their instruments. That in itself is really something to witness live. And then it's, it's just that whole experience of being able to touch on such a wide array of uh, the diversity of our music and the fact that we've kept it interesting for so long. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. to, to have, like we were just talking earlier, to have an album like Distance Over Time, our 14th release, and everybody's, you know, reacting to it as if it was our second or third release, that's pretty incredible at that point. And then to go out, but I think we've, you know, we've created more of a, a recognition for our live shows more so than what the albums do and say to the people. To our fans, I think it's more like you got to go out and experience this band live because you won't freaking believe it. And it's not just hearing it; it's also seeing it—the visuals, the lighting, the production that we put on. It's it's an experience. Yeah, what were you gonna say, Chris? I was just gonna say this is something that it, it actually it, it made me laugh, but it also pissed pissed me off. We I came and saw you guys and once again. When you see Dream Theater live, that's a whole different story because when you hear something, and being a musician and a fan, you hear it. That's really cool. When you watch watch you guys play it, that's a completely different world because you're seeing just the intricacy and it just watching John Myung play bass. It just I call him an octopus because he's just like yeah, totally. He's got eight <laughs> arms. But one time you guys, it might, you might have even been doing Dance of Eternity or something along those lines. And not only was like this this ridiculously crazy intricate instrumental, then you guys have the audacity to pull out a soccer ball. Oh yeah, and start kicking a soccer ball back and forth. To where this day, my friends and I say they were soccer balling at that point. Like if there's some crazy part, that there's soccer ball in there. Oh, that's funny. Is that in the Urban Dictionary? <laughs> that's in the yeah, that's in the Urban Dictionary amongst the Jericho uh, Jericho close of uh, friends. That. That's awesome. So that's that's almost just like okay, now we're really just gonna go watch this. You know, what's the mindset of kicking the soccer ball during these crazy parts? <laughs> you know, people ask like they ask me all the time as a guitar player, how do you remember all those parts and the intricacies and everything like that. And everybody has their, their way of doing things of internalizing music and being able to perform it. But, you know, for us, James kind of mentioned it before, once you do, it just becomes very second nature mm -hmm. as, co as complicated as something may be. I'm sure you experience this in, in your world as well, Chris, like, you know, people watching you like, how the hell, how's he doing that? You know, like Good I, point. I'm blown away by what you do. I'm like, how, Okay. <laughs> first of all, I'd be dead. I'd be dead within the first two minutes, <laughs> you know? And, and it's like, it, it's the same type of thing where there's an entertainment um, aspect and there's people watching, there's a live audience. There's a lot that you're thinking about and going, that's going through your head. But at some point it, it no matter how complicated what you're doing is, it does become sort of second nature becomes, you know, mm -hmm. something that you could do. And in, in those instances, yeah, you sort of can, you know, kick a soccer ball around when you're playing something complicated <laughs> because it's it's a lot of muscle memory and just like anything else, you know. There's the opposite side of that too, John, yeah. where we've, we've yeah. said in the past where you start thinking about your parts that come up mm -hmm. and that's when you start screwing up. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you can't, you know. Yeah, if anything, maybe the soccer ball is a uh, distraction. Yeah, it's a good from thing. From messing up. There, there is that. It's like that for a singer too, James. And you know what I'm talking about when you when we we talked about earlier about about taking new songs out on the road at the beginning of the tour. That's where you have to really be thinking about the lyrics and and like, am I getting these lyrics right? And maybe even beforehand in the in the dressing room, always get the phone out and Google the lyrics and am I getting this right? Yeah, 
yeah. to do, you know, a pull me under, then you can think about, you know, what you're going to have for dinner later that night or how much laundry you got. It's just, you got it locked in for that, right? Yeah. Well, you know what, believe it or not. So, you know, I've, I've never used a teleprompter and like John, John's aware of that. Like I, just because I feel it gives you the freedom and you do mm. the same thing. You get out there and you just, you want to be able to, you know, engage with the crowd. Don't start thinking about the lyrics. And I mean, Hey, hats off to the people that, that want to have the uh, the teleprompters out there and they can still put on the show. That's great. But yeah. I just, that just seems so unnatural to me personally. But you were just talking about, you know, like you're you're in this and you're like, okay, what were the words to that, that song again? I've had it. You know how I have the little tent in the back of the stage all the time? So I go in there and while these guys are doing their thing, you know, instrumentally. And I've had myself sit in there and all of a sudden, I start thinking, well, oh, yeah, okay, so it's this part coming up. And I start thinking about the words, you know, which I shouldn't do. I should just yeah. go out there, grab the <laughs> mic, and start singing it, right? And then I've, I've, I've been in a panic. I'm like, holy shit, what was the first line? Why can't I get this first line? And I've had it where I've come out of the tent, run over to the water dredge, and go, pull off the freaking lyric, man. You gotta, I don't know the first two lines. He's like, what? What are you talking about? He thinks I'm joking, right? I'm like, no, man, I'm serious. So that's happened to me a few times. So now I actually force myself, don't think about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Don't think about where you're going with this. And it's so bizarre. I'm, I'm like, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm in awe of you guys, both of you guys as vocalists. I don't know how you remember the lyrics. It, it must be a di different part of the brain because I, oh, yeah. I, have like, I have like my few measly background vocals I need to do. And it's like, I have a cheat sheet. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I got a cheat sheet and then, you know, I can't really, I don't wear glasses, but I probably should. So, uh, you know, the, the words are like gigantic down on, you know, and I still can't remember them. So, uh, <laughs> I've know, had maybe, maybe like, too. go ahead, John. I was going to say, maybe it's just like a choice. <laughs> I'm not to remember. I've had it too, though, where you have that horrible moment, like James was talking about when you go up to the mic and it could be a song you've sang a thousand times before, but yep. you forget the words and you forget the melody. That's even worse. Cause yeah, even yeah. if you forget the words, you can always go, when you forget the melody too, then it's, then you're just like, yeah. Uh, and just and that's why I just pretend my mic doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> just hit your mic stand. Over. Yeah, yeah. I've had it where where I'm playing and I I could just completely forget what the next chord is. Right. And I just and I just play anything and it's just like <laughs> it's usually the worst choice and it's just like but 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 I'm fully committed because just like. <laughs> You know, I'm on stage, so I'm like, I, I don't know what the next chord is. I'm just playing this, and you I'm gonna look go like it, man. I'm, I'm gonna look like I mean it, but it's just like, how'd that happen? I completely forgot. <laughs> it's like dri you driving, and you're like, wait, where do I turn? Like, yeah. I don't know where. So it's been a really tough year with the pandemic and everything. Of course, we lost Rush drummer Neil Peart and Eddie Van Halen, two of the all-time greats. I want to talk about how those losses, especially Neil, affected you guys. We'll do that coming up. But first, we need to thank Geico for making this episode possible. Do you own or rent your home? I'm sure you do. I bet it can be hard work. Uh, but you know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today, G-E-I-C-O. That's Geico.com and bundle, bundle, bundle. 
It's been really crazy over over the last eight months, not just because of the pandemic, but basically two of the greatest rock and roll bands, and we're all influenced by them uh, in Rush and Van Halen, were go- are gone. There will never be another Rush, and there will never be a Van Halen. There can't be. They, they maybe you know a, a tribute show or something like that. How was that for you guys? Because I was thinking about this. We lost Neil in January. We lost Kobe Bryant. And then we, of course, lost Eddie Van Halen a couple weeks ago. These are three guys that you could literally say are the greatest ever at what they did. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, Gretzky and like Ozzy, they better go in a bunker somewhere and just hide and get through these next three or four months. You know what I mean? Because yeah. this is just out of control. But for us, like as music fans, that really shook me, both of those guys, to lose both of them. How was it for, 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 for you guys and for Dream Theater in general to, to have that happen? It, it was hard. For, for us with Neil, we were uh, uh, on tour. And yeah, we, we got were just that getting news. ready to start. That's right. Yeah, we, we were on tour. We were actually in Europe. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's the same for you, James. For me, Rush, you know, is my favorite band. Like, they're growing up. Rush was my favorite band. That's that it, was yeah. it, you know? Yeah, it's for me. So... And Neil, not only obviously as a drummer, what he's contributed to the, the drum world, but as a lyricist to me, he was a huge, huge, tremendous influence, probably my biggest influence as a lyricist. Um, so, you know, as tragic as, as all the losses that we've had over the many years of, of musicians who are getting older, who are sick, whatever um, may be the case, Neil hit me like that was like blow because it was, yeah. that was the first time where I, I felt, wow, that rush will never play again i'll never i I don't know i mean i guess they were already retired but um i'll never read a new neil peart lyric you know i'll never be able to see him play again and uh that was that was very sad really really sad loss in that case anyway that was my experience and yeah we were on the road so just felt really surreal and bizarre yeah it really did i mean the way I, i i got through it with neil and with eddie is uh, when I was on the road, anytime I had, I'd start watching old videos yeah. of Rush and just kind of experience it. And that was kind of my spirit to, to Neil, you know, like, okay, Neil, you know, I'm doing this because, Frick, we already miss you. And the same thing with, with Eddie. You know, I've been the last couple weeks, as I'm having my coffee, I have my laptop in front of me and I'm just watching these videos. Yeah. And just the other day I did this, uh, there was this video with, with, uh, with Eddie and he was walking through his house and taking mm. a guy from MTV. Yeah. Way the back, studio. Like 98, 1998. Yeah. yeah. And I was just experiencing that whole thing. And it, you were seeing more who the guy was, you know, who was he, what was he into, what were his interests. And, and it's just, I think that's, that's my therapy trying to come to terms with, wow, man, we lost some of the greatest people in music. So influential, you know? But uh, yeah, it's, it's sad. Eddie is a blow too because, like, I mean, electric guitar in general hasn't been around for that long. If you think about it, you right. know, when it really started, like the fifties or whatever, and it's like you could point to like two or three guys along the way that just were one of a kind guys that just changed the game. Yeah, you know what I mean. Whether it's Hendrix or I, you know, Eddie is the guy. Guitar was never the same once he came mm-hmm. out and Van Halen one came out. It just changed forever. Yeah. And I can't think of like any guitar player that I know that wasn't either influenced by him or blown away by what he did. His just his uh 
creative spirit and his innovation, the sound that he had, the tone he had, everything like that. And again, the deepest impact is that you'll never get to see him do that again. Mm -hmm. It's just, a, yeah. it's a weird, sad feeling. It's like, I'm yeah, never going to, you know, yeah. I, I mean, he, he was relatively a young man. Like he, you know, could have had many years of playing ahead of him mm -hmm. and uh, we'll never get to see that, that magic. And there'll never be anyone that's the same as, as him that had that level. I, I, I don't know. I, I can't even name. I probably can't even name five guys that had, you know, that level of uh, you can't influence right yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy to me it's 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 Hendrix you could throw Randy Rhodes in there just for the neoclassical style sure and then there's Van Halen and that, I mean yeah anybody else really I don't think no. so and, and that's not taking away anything from the incredible guitar players that have come since you know mm -hmm. that are yeah, unbelievably innovative and incredible and amazing and mind blowing everybody in their own you know. In, from Holdsworth and beyond, but right. just as far as just, just like the iconic guy, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, in our world, it's a little bit of a bubble. So if, if a musician happens to pass away, who is incredible and very influential in our world, and you mention it to the average person, they might not know who that person is. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Eddie Van Halen, it's like, that's, that's like, you know, Michael Jackson level, you know, absolutely. That's yeah, exactly right. So, That's exactly right. right. Did you ever meet Eddie, John, with all your guitar, you know, NAM clinics and just being one of the premier guitar players in the world? You know, I, I, I met him once at NAM actually, and that was it. You know, I wish mm -hmm. I had more of an opportunity to, uh, to meet Eddie, to, to uh, get to know him. But unfortunately, yeah, just the one time at NAM, he was at the PV booth, went up these stairs and we had a little private conversation up there. And, um, uh, his his son Wolfie is actually a Dream Theater fan. He's kind of connected yeah, with us in the past. Sure. And, That's right. Um, yeah. In fact, I feel really I feel really bad because what, there was one show that Chris, you probably hate when this happens too, where the tickets got messed up. Never happened to like a good friend of yours or somebody like that. You really. Oh, yeah. And then like the next day, you're like, "Hey, where were you?" And they're like, "Oh, I went home because my tickets weren't there or something." It happened to Wolf one show. I, I don't know if you remember that. He's like, yeah, <laughs> something got messed up. I felt horrible. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know what's anyway. funny, John, is I think I was at that show. Let me see. Was it at oh. the Grove in Anaheim? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you were. Wow. Oh, my God. I remember you yeah. saying something about that back behind where the, in the parking lot behind the, yeah. the venue there. Mm -hmm. Oh my wow. God, that's funny, Chris. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> so I've always felt bad about that. Call back. Oh man. Do you guys think uh, we, when I mentioned earlier that because um, the thing, like we said, with Russian Van Halen, they weren't active, but there's always in the back of your mind, well, maybe they'll do one show or a residency or whatever. Do you think right. a lot of Rush fans, obviously a little older, but have they transferred over to Dream Theater, kind of being the modern day Rush? Not that you would put yourselves in that category personally but from the, the the band that has seemed to take in Russia's torch and ran with it of being this completely island and entity unto itself that a whole legion of fans appreciate that the mainstream has no idea who they are well we're not headlining Madison Square Garden yet so it's probably not <laughs> <laughs> yeah Rush was an enigma man because they, those guys they were so successful and when you think about the way that they toured they didn't really do international touring. Like they had their their summer yeah. tour spot and, and they play Good arenas point. and these places and that was it, you know? 
I, I think there there could be some crossover for sure. Just mm-hmm. to answer your question, you know, I'm not sure how much, but yeah. I think um, you know, a good example is remember when we were out with the S in 2004, and I remember uh, speaking with our manager, and he said, you know, when you go on the boards and you see how people are reacting to you guys out with with Yes, a lot of the Yes fans are saying. Who are these guys? Right. And I right. remember when he was telling me that, I was like, what do you mean, who are these guys? Like, <laughs> if you're into that kind of music, why wouldn't they have already been? Like, why wouldn't we have been on the radar? And right. I found that so bizarre. Yeah. That these Yes fans were like, hey, man, I saw this band the other night with, with uh, opening up for Yes, and they were freaking awesome. It's like, wait a minute, we've been around for 20 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And yeah. you're discovering us, and we're in the same were practically, you know, parallel to what Yes represented as music. So it's just that whole niche. I see that can that can be completely similar to the whole Rush thing. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. A lot of Rush fans are like, "Oh, yeah, who? Oh, Drew Good. Right. Okay, I'll check them out." You know, so don't you think you'd already be yeah, there? Maybe different generations too. And you guys are a little heavier than than Yes for sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk is Jericho, also sponsored in part by Nitsa. I'm not going very far. I'm in a rush. It's too uncomfortable. Sometimes I just forget. Don't kid yourself. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. If you've used any of these excuses or any others, you're putting yourself at risk of injury or death. In 2018, nearly 10,000 people were unbuckled when they were killed in crashes. That's 43% of people killed in motor vehicle crashes that were not wearing seatbelts. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, wearing your seatbelt is the best defense in a crash. Even when you sit in the back seat, you still need to buckle up, and that goes for when you ride in taxis and use ride-sharing services as well. Cops are on the lookout and writing tickets, so why take the risk? Seatbelts save lives, so do the smart thing and buckle up every trip, every day, every night. Remember, click it or ticket. Let's talk about, I, I touched upon it earlier when, when your new record, Distant Memories, and your tour, which I, I didn't get a chance to see because it was cut short, but I really wanted to go, which you guys played Scenes from a Memory in its entirety. And literally, I was listening again this morning. I have a, a, a game that I play with some, some of the guys, especially some of the guys in Avenged Sevenfold. We call it the Perfect Album Debate. And the Perfect Album Debate, every song on this record has to be A- minus or better, in your opinion. So you debate back and forth, Master of Puppets. So Leper Messiah doesn't count. Yes, it does. You know, back in black, giving the dog a bone, shake a leg. Yes. To me, uh, Scenes from Memory is a perfect record. Every song is great. Uh, it just ties in so well. It was one of the creative peaks in Dream Theater's history for sure. Revisiting it 20 years later, what were your thoughts on playing it again? And... Once you tell me about that, I want to talk about how you actually created the record in the first place. But how was it revisiting it 20 years later? Oh, man. Well, thank you for saying that, Chris. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Just to hear it's your amazing. feedback on that, to know that. Thank you. Um, that that was a pivotal album for us. And I know you want to talk about the making of after, but uh, it ended up being a very special album in our catalog to many people. So playing it live again it, you, you like we felt the impact that it had from people that had seen it before and were familiar with it, like yourself, uh, and as well as new people um, that have never seen it before. But you know, for me as a guitar player, relearning a lot of that stuff, some of it's <laughs> like pretty damn challenging. You know, uh, yeah, I had to practice get get my chops up and some of that stuff. Some of those songs are crazy, like Beyond This Life and Fatal Tragedy stuff like that. 
the cool thing, I think James will agree with this too, is, you know, back then when we presented it live back in 99 or whenever that was, we didn't, as a band, as an organization, you know, we didn't have the means to really present the show in the way that we wanted. If you watch the live scenes from New York, yeah, yeah. you know, we put everything we had into that show and like, you know, we tried to have actors and things went wrong. And even like the video, we had like TV screens, like we couldn't present it the way we wanted. So fast, fast forward to this tour, we, you know, given the success the band has, has thankfully gained over the years and our experience, we were able to actually present the show the way that we wanted to in the first place, which, you know, so we had the whole thing re, uh, the whole story reanimated, you know, with the whole screen and everything else. And so the presentation to me 20 years later was a lot more in line the way, you know, I thought the show originally intended. Should have, yeah. It should have been presented. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Like when you say that, cause um, for the tour beforehand, when you had all of the, the screens were up, the name is escaping me. The, the astonishing, the, I was the astonishing say the reckoning. Court. I know the astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. It was our reckoning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you had a yeah. whole like the video presentation and the screens and all that stuff was great. And it's it's funny, like you said, like even going to see Kiss nowadays, the big giant Kiss sign, it's all digital. Whereas mm. back in yeah. the seventies, they had to bring a giant Kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it is a lot. I'm sure, like you said, you can envision, you know, um, the, the show and the production that you wanted to. But some of some of those parts, you know, from a, a musician, but. Uh, not understanding like we talk about beyond this life or fatal tragedy those instrumental parts i don't even know what you guys are doing and it's so amazing to me like that to me is is is, is the epitome of the dream theater in, in, instrumental sections where there's a 7 8 and there's a 6 15 and there's a 19 18 and it's like it still blows my mind like i said it's from a complete fanboy uh, standpoint but like like you just mentioned, was it hard to relearn those parts? Did you have to go back and watch John Petrucci twenty years ago play it, or did you just have to noodle <laughs> with it? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, that that was the first album that Jordan Rudis right. you know wrote with us when after he joined the band. So we so Mike and I had experience with Liquid Tension Experiment with Jordan, and that music is very much. It, first of all, it's all instrumental, and a lot of it is is pretty crazy. So bringing Jordan into the mix as a writer, you know, helped kind of like just bring that level of, uh, uh, of writing and playing up to the next, you know, mm-hmm. to, to raise the bar in, in that sense. So things like dance of eternity and, and beyond this life and some of the instrumental parts, you can hear hints of that in the liquid tension and stuff. Like it, it was sort of like obvious. That's where we were going to, going yeah, to go for sure. as far as a, right. as a guitar player relearning this stuff it's a weird thing i mean some of those songs i played a million times like the spirit carries on and things like that sometimes when i'm relearning stuff it comes to me right away and I, i'm like oh that right i remember that it feels familiar other times i'm like how the hell did i do like <laughs> what what did i do you know it's like and and it's a little bit of a process and you start playing almost playing something wrong and as a guitar player i'm in the wrong position i'm like why would i ever play this like this <laughs> and then i and then like something goes off i'm like oh wait i didn't play it like that i played it up here and and it all comes back so there's a little bit of a of a process some songs are easier than others um and some you know i've played many more than others so it, it depends when i talked to vivian campbell when he started doing the last in line band 
playing those Dio songs that he hadn't played for 30 years. It was the same thing. He said he had to go on YouTube and either try and find solos, videos of him playing or find kids on YouTube playing the solo for, you know, Rainbow to the Dark. And <laughs> awesome. That was I that love I did it. it. That's crazy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. James, something I noticed that, that you used to do back in those days, you mentioned you had your little tent area behind the stage when there was, yeah. you know, a six or seven minute, minute instrumental piece, you would go behind the stage. And I always envisioned that you'd be, you know, doing a crossword puzzle or embroidering or whatever it was <laughs> that you would do. Yeah, that's a little highbrow for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. But but recently you, you've been more on stage. Uh, I noticed that you're kind of more uh, staying on stage a little bit, like at least the last couple tours that I saw. Is that yeah. a conscious decision where you want to be more in, into it or, or do you still go back quite a bit? I, I think the, the music is definitely dictating that depending right. on the songs that we, we selected for the, uh, for the set. Definitely with the astonishing, there was, you know, a lot more time that I was on stage because I was telling a story. You gotcha. know? And, uh, and that even happened a lot with, with scenes from a memory, you know, so I was very thankful for uh, dance of eternity. So, you know, <laughs> I could do my crossword puzzle, but no, you know, <laughs> no, I, I find that it, it depends on, on the songs. It depends on, on the album that we recently have written and then we're out touring in support of that as well as the rest of the set list. And that pretty much dictates where I want to be. I've always been a huge believer, Chris, uh, you know, especially being in a band like dream theater is when it's instrumental, get the hell off the stage, mm. you know? Like, I know some other, and I'm not going to say who, but I know there's other bands out there where the singer will stay on stage and try to engage themselves within the instrumental. And it just looks forced. To me, it just, it, that's, okay, you know, you're the singer, go away, you know? And then mm -hmm. come back when you're going to start singing again. And I, I just think with, with myself, I just would find it very awkward because there's only so many things you can do and move and try and look cool on stage where at some point you're going to start looking a little cheesy. So just get off and save, save the visual for when you're actually singing. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, just to answer your question, it, it depends on set list, my amount of time on stage and, and how often I'm out there. Or, you know, if the song only has like a 10 or 15 second little instrumental thing, sure. then obviously I'm going to stay on stage and, and engage with, with the uh, audience as best I can. Yeah. You can't really grab a tambourine and shake it for seven I've minutes. done that, though. <laughs> I did that. I did that, and then I had the freaking percussion up on stage. Yeah. I was doing that for a while, you know, and I was like, nah, nah. Yeah. That's not me. Uh -uh. I'm not doing that anymore. That makes sense. That makes sense. Talk about the idea behind Scenes for Memory, because like you mentioned, it was a little bit of a down period for DT after – uh, I think falling to infinity and, and kind of the Jordan had just come in the band and, and what was the mindset in putting together this masterpiece of scenes from a memory? I mean, there, there were a lot of firsts with that, that record. I think it was a, a, you know, it was about 10 years into our career. It was a pivotal moment because there was a, you know, we, we had to kind of make some really major decisions. You know, one of them was asking Jordan to join the band so changing a band member is always a pivotal decision. That's a big, big one. The other one was breaking away from having our records produced by an outside producer mm. and for the first time self-producing. In this case, it was uh, myself and Mike Portnoy producing the record. And that was a crucial decision because that's a big one. It's like, okay, you know, we're going to take this on ourselves. We don't want any outside help that's really important to us. So you have two major things happening 
And the third major event is that as a you know progressive style band, prog metal, whatever you want to call us, we had never done a concept album. Right. And some of our favorite albums of all time, you know, collectively, all of us were the, were the Wall and Operation Mindcrime and you know, you name it. So Tommy, yeah. Um, ma- yeah, making the decision to like let's do a concept album knowing that there's all this these great albums and we didn't want to fail at it you know like it had to be great like so we had these three huge pieces of the puzzle big decisions that you know even by themselves would have been big deals you know getting a new band member um deciding to self-produce doing a concept album for the first time but we put it all together in one (laughs) right yeah so that was uh you know but it was fun it was also like really exciting we returned to bear tracks studios in upstate new york where we recorded uh, images and words so there was a familiarity um i don't know it's just a cool vibe it's like we all sort of decided to let's roll up our sleeves and make this happen and it was a fun album to make and you know it was a little bit strange story-wise because we had multiple writers so the lyrics are like oh i'll take this song remember james you're like oh i think i'll take these two Hey. Uh, John Mayung would take this. I'll take these. Mike will take that. And you know, the story was was written, but not written out. Yeah, necessarily. You know, and we just had like a meeting and talked about it. Yeah, exactly. so it was kind of like. See you later. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully, it ties in. Yeah. When I when I listen back to some of the words, I'm like, well, that could have been said more clearly. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of disconnect, but somehow it yeah. worked. It somehow it it all worked. You know. Yeah. I don't know. It was fun. It, it was definitely a fun record to make for sure. It's cool to me too. Cause there's kind of a mystery behind, like you mentioned operation Minecraft, like who killed Mary. And at the end of this with the coming out of the closet, and the record scratches and the, yeah, 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 kills yeah. the psychiatrist. And it really, for it caused a lot of, and it was just at the advent of the internet too, 99, 2000. Right. So there true. was a lot of, you could go on the message boards and like what happened and who's the psychiatrist yeah. and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Is that, is that something that you kind of, did you take the inspiration from mind crime to try and create a little bit of a mystery? Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know if it was like overly conscious that we did that, but I think any good story has that level of, of drama to it. You know, you want to, you want to kind of invest in the characters and see how they're going to change and develop. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you have that question mark, that certainly adds an element of, of intrigue for sure. The whole sort of past life reincarnation thing, we just thought it was a really cool cool topic you know and yeah, the, the you fact were reading that, books on that stuff at the yeah time. yeah the yeah, fact yeah. that we we turned you know you kind of coupled that with it being a murder mystery yeah <laughs> you know it's got it's kind of like a whodunit which is always fun but yep. you know in a in a reincarnation <laughs> past life sense so it was an interesting yeah. interesting uh way of going about it you know it's it's cool too because i remember Bruce Dickinson said something about Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. He goes, well, it was a concept record, but it was a real piss poor, kind of lazy, really, you know, not really much of a story. And you guys, you could tell you went the other way with it, really formulated it and, and, and constructed it properly. James, let's talk about how you approach singing lyrics that you don't write yourself. Uh, I have the same issues. But before we do, Stephen Singer is the most hated jeweler in America. He's excited to introduce us all to someone very special, beautiful, classy, brilliant. She'll dazzle you. People can't stop staring at her. Her name is Krista, and she is easy. What? Hold on. Shut your mouth. Krista is Steven Singer's most love engagement ring and takes the stress and guesswork out of finding the perfect ring. A bright white, 100% eye, flawless, near colorless, high quality, round, brilliant cut diamond 
expertly set into a classic solitaire Tiffany setting. It's going to withstand the test of time. Krista's available, and she's ready for love, and she's ready to meet you. Steven Singer is not in the jewelry business. He's in the love business. This magnificent, full, one-carat, round, brilliant-cut diamond is only $3,198. Real jewelry doesn't have to be expensive, plus free shipping and 12 months interest-free financing. Steven's showroom is open by appointment only, so go to IHateStevenSinger.com and click on the Krista Ready for Love engagement ring. Steven Singer Jewelers, real jewelry, real experts for your love, real. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Check it out and meet Krista now. James, let me ask you this, and, and it's the same for me. I write some lyrics in Fozzy, a lot of other ones I don't, but I'm the one that has, has to present them to the world. Right. So when you hear about like this concept record and there's all these different things in there and there's here's the lyrics for the song here's how it goes how do you internalize that to sell that to the world because it doesn't matter who writes the lyrics you're the you're the mouthpiece for the band is it hard sometimes to say yeah, you convey the, the message yeah. i mean I've, I've always said chris that uh i sit down with the lyric i read through it and i let it speak to me first and foremost like how do i interpret mm-hmm. these words and if i am to become these words what kind of emotions does it spark within me? And if I get in touch with that emotionally, then I find that I'm on the right track. Ultimately, I sit down with whoever wrote the words and I say, okay, now be literal. What is it that you're trying to say here? So I take those two and I combine it. I combine Hmm. what the lyricist was trying to say or said, and then how I interpret it as a person, because ultimately it has to come through me so it has to be something that I can be completely connected to so that it's sincere and it's genuine when I'm singing it. Because I've always said, you know, it, it's easy for anybody to get up, get in front of a microphone and just sing the words and melody and make sure that it sounds good. But let's put a bit more into that. And that's why I loved Freddie Mercury, you know, and, uh, and Lou Graham, who had an incredible voice, you know. Um, like these guys, they, they you know, or, or Steve Perry or – or even Steven Tyler, what a freaking great singer. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to it, look at the words that he's singing, but he actually brings you into that zone. He sells it. And I think that that's where I've always been very much uh, invested in making sure that when I sing this, you're going to feel it, even if you don't know the word. Like if someone would not even know the language. You right. don't know the right, language, right, right, right. but you're still feeling what I'm talking about. So I, I think that that's the job of any any singer, and you know, and I can tell even when I listen to your stuff that you that you are you're tapping into that, mm-hmm. whether you wrote the words or not. And I, I think that that goes for any singer. If you really want to move people, and you really want to resonate and stay within the minds of them, it, it's how you deliver it. You know, emotionally, it all mm-hmm. it all has to ring on that first and foremost. Yeah, it's a great point. And I, you know, I always we were talking earlier about Neil Peart's lyrics. I always felt bad for Getty when Neil gives him like trees. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Talking about red barchetta. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. You're right. Motor law. What is this? Yeah, we do. We talk about that all the time. The the uh, watching those those vowels on high notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. There's some things about scenes, too, Chris. I'm, I'm not sure that if you're aware of or not, but. I don't know, it just might maybe interesting to bring up. But one of the things is the the record was originally mixed by David Botrill. Mm-hmm. And I think he's an awesome mix engineer for sure. sure. For me, the way the record sounded when we were done, I 
I wasn't feeling it because I wanted mm. it to be, I don't know, heavier or something. It just, it seemed like a little bit too soft of an approach. So I, it kind of like 11th hour, I was freaking out. I'm like talking to Mike. I'm like, I got to be honest with you. <laughs> I think we need to remix this. And it was one of yeah. those like, oh, okay. John, I was yeah. there. I was in there and I went into you guys and I said, like, you yeah. guys sat me in the chair with David yeah. in the room. And right. then I came up and said, hey, can I talk to you guys? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> so we were all kind of feeling that. It was like, so, wait, yeah. this and, isn't happening. And just, and just just to clarify, it's it's not that what he did was bad. He's he's an awesome mix not engineer. It's just, it wasn't the the sort of vision right. I had for Different it. In fact, in fact yeah. we ended up keeping two of his mixes. The mm -hmm. Spirit Carries On, which sounds amazing. And, uh, it, at least one last time, but maybe Dance of Eternity too. I, I can't remember. But anyway, um, we ended up ha having Kevin Shirley mix the record. Yeah. And I, I remember being in the studio with him. And he Kevin's funny because he's such a great mix engineer, but he moves fast, man. We had this like complicated <laughs> album with all these parts and things. And he's just really instinctual, you know, just put it up. And he's like doing all this stuff. And all of a sudden, there it was. Yep. I'm like, that's the sound. That's the <laughs> yeah. power. Yep. And so the record was remixed. The other point is that, you know, with concept records, um, when you when you do listen to Mind Crime and, and The Wall and stuff like that, there are elements that are non-musical that help tell the story. Like, mm, right. you know, sound effects, uh, speaking, things like that. You know, in the case of uh, scenes, you have the hypnotherapist and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Mike was really essential and crucial in getting that stuff together. Um, and it, it all happened actually during the mastering phase, which hmm. was interesting. I remember being in there, I think with the mastering assistant and, you know, Mike had all these, okay, now we have like a, need a ticking clock and then this is going to fade in here and, and this and that. And uh, this, I don't know if the guy was losing patience with us, but we, uh, <laughs> we put all that, we put all that stuff together um, in, in that mastering phase, which I remember. And that, that helped tie it all together because it helps to tell the story and, and add all those different fun elements, you know, whether it's like the, the murder scene, the gunshot sounds and the fighting and all the sound effects and stuff. I remember finding, looking for the sound effects and everything else, you know, going into libraries. It wasn't like, like you said, it was kind of the beginning of the internet, right? Yeah. So yeah, we had to kind of go to libraries and things like that. Unbelievable, right? Not, not libraries, physical kids, libraries. Google it. But <laughs> not, not the physical library. I mean, like sound libraries. Sound libraries, yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. Anyway. I thought that was, you know, it's funny too, because as we start to wind down here, I love how there's, there's, they call them overtures, uh, in, in classical music, but there's little snippets of Metropolis one. And even there's a couple of melodies that James sang in Metropolis that's in this record. And it ends with the, the static. And then the glass prison, the first song on the next record opens with the static. It was just, I always loved how dream theater did little cool, little things like that ear candy where if you got it, it's almost like watching the family guy. If you get it, right. it's amazing. Yeah. If you yes. don't, you don't even notice it, right? You don't yeah, even notice right. it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here's, here's the funny thing is that this, the record's called Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. It's based on Metropolis Part 1, which was on Images and Words. And, you know, going back to being Rush fans, uh, I always loved the way they had, like, you know, part one you know with the roman normal it Cygnus is like part one yeah Cygnus part. so it's like all right we we need to do that <laughs> so it's like wrote like metropolis and i called it part one you know not ever expecting a part two or whatever just because rush did it <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so fast fast forward it's like okay 
the album will be based on Metropolis Part One. This will be Part Two, and it's like the the lyrics to Metropolis Part One are so bizarre and abstract. It was like, how are we going to make <laughs> that mean? right have anything to do with a reincarnation murder mystery? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so so that was a stretch. That was a big stretch. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, musically, it was not that hard. Lyrically, it was that was a stretch. <laughs> So something that I want to talk about from the, the scenes from a memory tour was the infamous fire marshal show in, in L.A. Uh, I was actually there. Was that at the, was it the Palladium? Do you remember? That is a good question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, somewhere. Uh, was it the Palladium? That does sound familiar. I think it was one uh, of those things. But but so, yeah, yeah. so what happened was we were doing the show. Uh, we were watching the show and then halfway through or towards the end of, of, of scenes, uh, somebody came on stage and, and said, we all had to leave and everybody got basically kicked out because of a fire marshal. Uh, so kind of, I want to hear the story from your end of things and how that, that came to play. Yeah. Well, you're right. So we were on, I think it must've been when we were initially on tour in support of scenes, right? Like, it, are you talking yeah, it was the scene. This yeah. would have been then, like two, like yeah, two thousand, yeah, two thousand, yeah. Okay, so we were on that tour, and the tour was doing really well, and so the shows were selling out. That particular one in L.A., I'm sure you're right on the Palladium. We played so many venues in L.A. It's hard to they kind of blend, but it was a really packed night. I remember it was like a two level kind of venue, and it was you know packed. Uh, I got it. It was uh, the Palace in Los Angeles. The I just Palace. Mean, the Palace. That's okay. it. <laughs> okay. Well, at least we got the P, right? We did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was totally packed. It was a great night. Show was going great. I wasn't really aware of what was happening, but I noticed all of a sudden that the um, the PA shut off, which it's it's kind of hard to notice at first because you're very much in the moment mm. and, and you don't really realize what's happening. But and, and sometimes when something like that happens, you think it's just like a technical problem you know that stuff happens sometimes the lights go down or the pa for a second comes back up but it wasn't coming back up and i was very completely unaware apparently of everything that had happened prior to that moment with all this commotion with the fire marshal coming in because it was over capacity and you know i I think apparently mike like getting into it with them and all this stuff (laughs) maybe maybe you saw some of that i I didn't i was just playing but the end result is that you know they shut they stopped the show the pa went off but we're playing the spirit carries on which is a very you know big climactic emotional moment of the scene show and uh we just decided to keep playing Mm -hmm. for some reason not you know not to stop uh, even in light of what happened and what happened next was something that was really, really cool. And for the people that were there, including yourself, it probably created a great memory is that everybody started to sing yes. along. The whole audience was singing the spirit carries on, even though, you know, we had to stop and this and the, the show stopped. So it was just like, you know, the fire marshal and they're, they're just doing their job. You know, the uh, venue owner, messed up and sold too many tickets and there were too many people <laughs> that could be dangerous of course yes we know the dangers of that unfortunately but um you know uh, the, the end result with everybody singing on especially to that song like could have happened in the middle of 
Dance of Eternity, and it wouldn't have been as Same, special. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that it, like it stopped and and they're singing the words that the spirit carries on, it was like a total. You know, f you to the man. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because like you said, I remember. I mean, first of all, I remember it was so packed. Um, yeah. I think it was me. I th- it was so packed. We've been drinking beer or whatever. I remember it was so I couldn't even. I was like, I'm not going to leave to go to the bathroom. I remember I just pissed in my beer cup and just kind of <laughs> held on to it. That's all. But I'm then, glad you said beer cup because I wasn't sure how you were going to finish that statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the beer cup. But then, like you said, during Spirit Carries On, like everything just just went dead, and all we could hear was your monitors on stage. Like, and yes. remember, everyone was sort of like booing, like what's going on. And then even your monitors shut off, and so Mike was still playing his drums, obviously because right. you could hear with the acoustics. And then everybody right. sang sang along with that, which was yeah, it was a really cool moment. It was kind of a drag, but like you said, it was a. a uh, you know, a very uh, show that, that people won't forget. Did the fire marshals say anything to you guys or were they just like, you guys just got to go and that's the end of it sort of thing? You know what? I had no interaction with the fire marshals or anything after it, it was just, it was sort of chaotic. You know, like you said, the audience was, you know, definitely disappointed that we, we didn't get to finish the show and I guess they had to empty the venue. So yeah, I, I didn't have any interaction gotcha. with any of the, anybody there, but I, I yeah, I, I don't. Again, I was sort of oblivious. Like, but I, but what what I remember, Mike saying was that there was a whole, like, just like a whole, uh, you know, controversy, like where they were telling us to shut off. I don't know if it was our tour manager that was like fighting them or something, or Mike was involved, but like we just like wouldn't listen. Yeah, you just you kept know? playing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the best part yeah. of all was was afterwards when we were all leaving, like you know, Dream Theater fans, they're all pretty. The, you know, no mosh pits really at a dream theater show right. uh, and everyone was just leaving and everyone was really cool. Well, there was like tons of cop cars outside, like five or six yes. cop cars. And I was like, they're really lucky. This wasn't a Pantera show or, you know, a Slayer show. People would be like fighting and rioting. Dream oh, theater. Totally. <laughs> dream theater guys are just like, all right, it's over. Let's go. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, okay, you want to go to the diner? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. It, you know, it's like, Every band has to have those rock and roll moments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, you know, it's it's like you know, with us, like we just play by the rules so much. It's like <laughs> cop cars. No, they're just giving people directions. You know? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Last couple of things you mentioned earlier: your solo record, Terminal Velocity, and uh, really, really great stuff. I played actually a couple songs on my Sirius XM show. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Absolutely. So, but it's great having the Petrucci Portnoy connection. Of course, Mike played drums on on that record. How was it playing with Mike again and kind of rekindling this this musical relationship? It was great. It was really great. I'm really happy that he, that he did the record. He did such a great job. I, mm-hmm. I wish we could have really played together. You know, I, I sort of because of the pandemic situation, I wrote the record and recorded all of the guitars first. And then Mike and Dave LaRue had a play to that. So unfortunately, we didn't really get to jam the record together. Mm-hmm. But he was able to come up to uh, my studio and and uh, track the drums with me there. So we did have some interaction. We were able to work out parts and, uh, you know, have feedback and stuff. We had a great, we had a fun week, about six days um, here in New York. And uh, it was really cool. It was the first thing, obviously, we did musically together since, you know, for uh, 10, 10 years, years ago plus. Was, yeah. 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 So it was great. He was really easygoing. It was great. 
and uh, did a killer job. Both him and Dave, man, those those guys, uh, you know. Well, I saw I saw that lineup when you guys when you did G three. Yeah. Once again, maybe ten years ago could have been fifteen. I don't remember. Yeah, but probably longer. Yeah, probably longer. It was Satriani, you and maybe maybe it was, it was it Kenny Way Shepherd that time, or I can't remember. Who no, it was. The, well, the first one I did was me and Joe and Vi. Yeah, that's that was like two thousand one. Yeah, it was that long ago. My I goodness. know, but I did. I did like I don't know another did like eight G three tours or something like that. So there have been many. <laughs> Last few questions. So what, what do you think? I mean, it's hard to say. You know, what's the next step for Dream Theater? Because none of us know what the next step is for any of us. But will you continue this uh, distant memories tour, uh, or will you just cut it, cut your losses, so to speak, and do a new record? Or, or what do you think? What do you figure? What do you think, James? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, you know what? It, it's interesting. I just did a, a a burn interview just two days ago, and that was one of the questions. So you know, the Japanese fans would would like when Dream Theater comes here, you can play scenes from a memory, mm-hmm. right? And it's like you know, it, it's not just that easy. You know, it's right. it's not because by the time we start to go out on tour again, it'll be because we have a new album out. We'll want to be playing songs from that. Also touching on other albums that we haven't played, you know, various songs from those albums. So, and then you just say, okay, now we're going to bring back an hour plus material and do it maybe just for a couple of regions around the world. That, that, that's a big undertaking. So I think, you know, myself personally, I, w- I would like to say, you know, it's unfortunate that we weren't able to continue with this tour and play. But I think at that point in time, when we are back out on the road, it's going to be a completely different situation for the band. It'll be because we have new material and we want to present who and what we are at that point in our career. Yeah. John will talk to me. After, what are you talking about, man? What are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> no, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say because they're talking about touring, not, you know, resuming for another year or so. Yeah. So who knows where, where we'll be there. We did as a band, we did decide to pivot and we entered the studio a couple of weeks ago. We're working on a new album. Because Great. that's what we do. You know, we can't play live. Let's make music together. Exactly. That's what we're doing now. We're already off to a great start. It'll be out sometime next year. Well, I'll tell you what, on that note. So I got up at eight, had my coffee, sat down at nine. I finished listening to the second song mm. just before. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, Was it a heavy God. one? Was it heavy, James? <laughs> it's all that and more. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's blown me away what uh, what has how this has impacted the music industry. Oh yeah, you know, and and not not only bands who aren't able to perform live, but everybody else you know directly associated with bands. All of our crews, crew, I know. management, oh my God. management agents, promoters, venues. You know, and it, it's it's drives me crazy that a, a whole industry could basically just be shut down you know it's like there's nothing you can do a lot of the other industries have been able to adapt right yeah what you know if you take whatever salons restaurants things like that even movie theaters now they they're adapting okay we'll do social distancing we'll do 25 percent capacity but uh you know broadway new york no live performances no no and uh yeah it's it's really frustrating you know and there, there are so many people out of work it's not just the musicians, yeah. but it's it's yeah. the entire 
community. So I'm really hoping we get past this soon. Well, man. yeah. And that's like, we, we continued wrestling, but we were wrestling in front of nobody for six right. months. And now we have the, you know, limited 15% crowds. Right. We're at an outdoor venue in Jacksonville that we work in every week. So it's 600 people, but at yeah. a 6,000, but I'll tell you what, that first week when there was 600 people there after, after months of zero, yeah. it felt like Madison Square Garden. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, that's amazing that you're, that you're able to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, like we said, I mean, everyone's just trying to adapt the best they can, you know? So exactly. but I think, it, like you said, I think there's going to be some great records coming out, you know, over the next six months or a year, because all of us are in the same position. If sure. Can't tour, let's, let's write and record and exactly. be ready to go. You know, there will be a, mu- a musical, a musical renaissance for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Big time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Last question. That's a hard one, but, but James, what's your favorite song to sing these days live? Is there one that you look forward to? And John, what's your favorite one to play live? I'll tell you what, because we, we, uh, you know, we have the, uh, the DVD coming up. I would say from scenes every night, I look forward to singing, uh, one last time. Hmm. And you see, this is, this is where we're splitting hairs and finally free. Hmm. I love those. The just, two powerful. Just, yeah, you know, and tunes, very yeah. dynamic. Like they both start out really, you know, quiet, and then it just builds, 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 builds. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just really epic by the time you get near the end of the song. So those two for sure. I can't, can't really put it down to one. Yeah. John? I mean, yeah, again, just kind of focusing on, uh, on the DVD coming out. I mean, the first set. Barstool Warrior is always just a fun song. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a new a one off of Distance Over Time. Just has a fun guitar moments for me. The middle section guitar solo is just kind of a very emotional point. You know, as far as scenes, there are songs that are certainly fun as a guitar player, like we mentioned before, Beyond This Life and stuff. But the one song, it's actually Through Her Eyes, uh, oh, where yeah. it's a moment, a moment in the show where the, the whole band kind of comes down. It's a, basically acoustic vocal type of thing um there's other orchestration there but what we did in the uh with the video and i thought this was always a real poignant moment of the show for people that were there is in the story it it has to do with the main character sort of visiting the grave of uh his past life counterpart and kind of coming to this realization so we have animation of a, a cemetery scene and what the video artist wayne joiner did is his suggestion was to put names of our fallen musicians uh, mm. on the tombstones. Mm. So as that as that very emotional, uh, very emotional music is playing, you see Zappa, you know, you see Emerson, you see Cornell, you see Rhodes, you see you see Burton. You know, if it if uh, it would have been now, you'd see Van Halen, you'd right. see Pierre. In fact, in fact, when Neil passed away immediately uh i was on the phone with wayne and he added pierre to one of the tombstones mm. it might have been on like the next day yeah, yeah and and it was such an emotional i'm getting the chills thinking about yeah, it yes yeah. yeah. as we're playing that very beautiful song a uh, very introspective song lyrically and the the tombstones are being shown and you see pierre i mean there was such an uproar from yeah, the crowd yeah, so sure. yeah so that that was that was fun when I say fun, I mean, sure. it was a, uh, a memorable moment of, of the scene show on Distant yeah. Memories. So people can see that a bit 
on the DVD because we did show we do show what's going on on the screen. Yeah. Well, dudes, I'm looking forward to seeing it because, like I said, I didn't get a chance to see it live, but I got to see you guys live today, and it's uh, it's good to see you guys again. And, yeah. And hopefully, we can here, rock together again soon. Uh, very, very, uh, very, very, very shortly. Absolutely, man. Great talking to you. Great yeah. seeing you. And yeah. uh, thanks, guys. Yeah. Stay yeah. safe. We'll see you awesome. Soon. Great seeing you. All right. Take care. All right. Buddy. Take Bye. care. Bye. See you.